I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. It's like going to heaven, I'll tell you. <laughs> this is Phil. I'm uh, Phil Gummersel. I have quite a number of roles in allotments. Uh, I'm actually the president of the National Allotment Society. I'm the representative for Great Britain on the international allotment movement. So it's all allotments is my life. <laughs> all allotments. Sounds like we get along. Just like me, he absolutely loves allotments. I feel very strongly that allotments are the bee's knees, to be honest. So much so that he runs a national week just to celebrate them. National Allotment Week is a thing that the National Allotment Society brought up to raise the awareness of all the benefits that allotment gardening is fresh air, exercise outdoors... It appeals to everyone from small children right up to pensioners. There's not many activities to cater for that range of people. National Allotment Week is happening now and runs until the 16th of August. But National Allotment Society website is bursting with enticing facts. From the country's best plot to information about the health and well-being benefits of growing your own food, something Phil knows all about. Give me an hour on the allotment and it took all the stress away. You know, talking to the plants, <laughs> they don't answer back, but there's something about it that uh, enlightens your aspect on life. You know, it's pretty good. And a big part of this week is about proving to those in power just how beneficial allotments are. I'm running a campaign at the moment. I'm picking up the Prime Minister's uh, Better Health campaign. He's mentioned about cycling. Now cycling's great, but he didn't mention our allotment gardens and, and these sort of things. It's trying to bring us to the fore because we are like a forgotten recreation activity, I think, in, in many people's minds in the authorities and to try and bring it to the fore so they are aware of the benefits that we can bring to our community. Something us allotmenteers know too well. I love getting my hands mucky in soil. <laughs> Back to the basics. <laughs> it's that basic urge of, of mankind, isn't it, to actually get in the soil and grow your own and support yourself. It's great. <laughs> So, inspired by Phil and National Allotment Week, this week's show is about being creative with your plot. Whether that be how to grow something unusual, exploring why a fragrant herb is a must-have, or giving your produce a new lease of life through fermenting. I'm Guy Barter and welcome to Gardening with the RHS.
Well, I love my allotment. I must love my allotment. I've had an allotment since 1970 on and off and in different places. I like growing my own food. I like the taste of fresh produce. I like trying out all sorts of different gardening techniques. I like growing lots of crops, whether it's herbs, vegetables or fruit. I like the company, although you have to be a bit careful, otherwise you get chatting and nothing gets done. And I like being there in the winter when I'm on my own and have the whole plot to myself. I'm one of the very few people who grows winter crops and stands around in the mud harvesting them, so I must love my allotment. Let's begin today by looking at veg from around the world. Matthew Oliver is a horticulturist at RHS Garden Hyde Hall in Essex. He looks after our global growth vegetable garden. It's a circular plot that grows crops from all over the world, everything from chia seeds to loofahs and yard-long beans, and of course the regulars like carrots and potatoes. But like all gardeners, Matthew's plot is not immune to pesky pests. So he spoke to our gardening advisor, Becky Mealy, for some advice on what's been bothering him and what he's been growing. So, Matt, what's been troubling you or have you got any real good successes? Well, I think the one we need to start with that seems to be five a pound for every time I was asked this and every time I had to deal with it myself so far this year seems to be a really bad year for aphid, especially on things like French beans, runner beans. I've had bad case of lupin aphid on some of the edible lupins I grow in the garden. That seems to be the number one issue, I think, this year. I mean, I was very lucky that I did have quite a lot of ladybirds in my garden kind of setting about. And then I was ready with the eco-effective sprays just to try and help keep everything under control. But, yeah, a lot of people will have very gnarly growth tips on their um, runner beans and things like honeysuckles were covered as well. The advice yeah. I've been giving people is um, just go around and squish them. Yeah, I've been sending up my um, teenager girl said, oh, you've got nothing to do. Go and squish the aphids. <laughs> we had quite a few people caught out by the cold spell in May. And then obviously having too many seedlings ready and waiting to go out, windowsills full of them and all going yellow and leggy. I just think that sometimes people get things started too early, really, for the capability of... Ho- I mean, what time do you start your tomatoes? I start my tomatoes in February because I know that they go from our nursery propagation glasshouse and they go straight into the glasshouse in the middle of the global growth veg garden and both of them we can keep heated. It allows me to get a really early crop. If I had to grow tomatoes outside, I don't think I'd start them until late March into April. Having an allotment is quite an exciting thing for a new allotment owners and it's very tempting, isn't it, to kind of try everything all at once. But I mean potatoes are pretty much on there, aren't they? As a good starter one, but it, it's very tempting to be like a little sweet shop and choose all the seeds. Uh it's easy to get carried away and even people like me with uh years of experience you know you sit down in the winter and the spring and all the your season yeah we're going to do this and we're going to do that and then it gets to July and you're going why on earth did I choose to grow so much and you spread so thin one thing that I try and tell new allotment gardeners is um, don't just have to focus on summer harvests when you've got bags and bags of veg coming out of your ears and you can't give it away and your freezer's full up so one thing I've learned to do a bit more on my allotment and try to replicate in the veg garden at work is to focus on 
putting a decent proportion of things in that you would harvest gradually over the winter. I'm a big fan of parsnips, leeks, celeriac, things like leaving the ground a bit longer and harvest as and when you need them through the winter months. For me, that takes the pressure off. You know, they're fairly easy to look after crops and just spread your harvest out. And as a new gardener, it gets you into the rhythm of actually going to the allotment in the non-growing season, which is just as important as being there three times a week in the middle of summer. I saw on Twitter that you were growing chia seeds. How are they doing? Yes, I think I've got about a dozen plants planted in a raised bed. Grow them in the South American quarter of the veg garden. It's only the second year I've grown them. I grew them for the first time last year and I never got them through to flowering. I've got a hunch that they're one that perhaps might prefer a bit of an Indian summer. We'll see how they get on this summer. I'm hoping for flowers and if I can get flowers, I'm hoping we'll get a seed. But at the moment, I'm still battling with them. I had a quick count up in the spring. We've got over 500 different species of edible plant in the garden now. And you think your normal allotment, you might only cover a couple of dozen tops maybe. That learning curve of how to get your eye in and get a hand into those trickier ones, those ones that are perhaps not such well suited as being a garden plant, that's where the fun comes in in my job. This defeated me last year. I'm going to have you this year. I'm going to get it right. Now, I used to work on a tomato farm when I was a teenager and by the end of the year, I was absolutely sick of tomatoes, but I couldn't actually then stomach the taste of supermarket tomatoes because they weren't the same as the tomatoes that I'd been picking at this farm. It's definitely the taste is just what it's about. I certainly measure my calendar year through uh, the first harvest of crops off the allotment. You know, you know, it's the first or second week of July when you get those uh, first early spuds up and June when you get in the first pickings of peas. Look forward to the first pods of her screenshot pay every year. You know, it's August when the sweet corn kick in, and you know that it's uh, you've had your first frost when you first did the parsnips up in the winter. It's like that's that cycle of the year that you do everything by and you look forward to. That's why I do it anyway. Take a look at the garden for yourself by visiting Hyde Hall. Just remember. Pre-booking is essential, and you can do that on our website. One type of edible growing that really brings back the memories to me is herbs. I garden in Surrey. It's a dry area, and it's a dry, sandy soil just a few miles from Wisley, so perennial herbs like rosemary and hyssop, thyme, and bay trees, especially bay trees, are very big in my garden. They're drought-resistant and tasty and very low effort. But I also like softer herbs like basil i grow a lot of basil each year and also tarragon i've got some lovely tarragon it's proper french tarragon i got the plants from jack and mcvicker rhs council member and also renowned herb grower and they thrived year after year i repot them and have the most lovely tarragon with my soups and stews and even microwaved things i believe herbs are one of the best things to grow with They're quite expensive in the shops and they're never quite as fresh as those picked from outside your back door. Whether it's their delicious scents or the flavours they bring to our plates, herbs have a special place in many people's lives. Our very own Catherine Potsidis feels the same way about a particular Mediterranean herb. The plant I love is thyme. 
because much of what I grow, I grow to cook. It smells amazing. It's got tiny pink and purple flowers. I think sometimes you can get ones with white flowers too. It's enjoyed by the bees and then enjoyed by me, sprinkled on much of what I cook. So it's a plant that's been prized for its scent, oils and flavour over civilizations and centuries. And in my kitchen, I use the lemony soft Thymus citriodorus crushed onto summery grilled vegetables and powerful Thymus vulgaris mixed with other herbs and spices to make satar for hot baked flatbreads. One of the reasons I love this plant is because it reminds me of so many places I've visited and I particularly love the mountainsides, the Pyrenean mountains near the Mediterranean coast, the border between Spain and France. It's somewhere quite special for me and I've seen this plant growing wild on almost every hilltop and you could just walk past it and it brushes against your legs and releases this amazing scent and it's cooked in everything everything from fish to vegetables and you can just smell it It, it, it's the smell of the sea it's the smell of the mountain air and that's why I love to grow it the only time I've ever failed with thyme is in fact when I planted it somewhere a little bit too cool and shady and I think it got slightly wet feet and it wasn't very very happy there so I picked it up and moved it put it into a pot a nice terracotta pot with lots and lots of gravel and grit to make sure that it had some good drainage so yes it won't like wet feet it does need to be in a sort of hot and dryish sort of situation to thrive but it really gets going once it once it does sometimes they can get a little bit leggy and um, woody but luckily it's quite easy to take a little cutting and um, grow some new plants from the sort of fresh shoots so I'd really recommend that if you want to sort of try growing some yourself is maybe find a friend who's got a plant take a few cuttings and have a go well one of my favorite things to put on pretty much everything is a sort of middle eastern herb and spice mix called za'atar and za'atar is made from herbs so dried thyme normally and then you mix it with a wonderful sumac which has this amazing lemony citrusy flavor and sometimes with toasted sesame seeds and you can sort of base that on any kind of grilled vegetable or meat and it's really nice with lots of olive oil on um, flatbread as well so it's got this sort of nice lemon citrus flavor from the sumac and then the beautiful sort of herbiness of the the thyme really sings through so that's one of my favorite things to make is za'atar spice mix i'd really recommend growing thyme because it has its beautiful scent it really really does once it gets going gets covered in beautiful tiny tiny flowers and the bees absolutely love it so it's absolutely great for the pollinators too and we love plants with pollinators so I think that brings a lot of joy and uh, yeah tastes brilliant and you can dry it you can stick it in the freezer if you end up with an abundance of it at the end of summer it will keep going through the winter dried or or frozen and um, yeah it's just a fabulously fun plant to grow but plenty of grit and uh, you'll be away. Catherine Potsides. If there's one thing that reminds me of this time of year on the allotment, it's courgettes. I'm inundated with them every year. I just can't give enough of them away. 
I hate to throw perfectly usable things away, so I've been looking into fermenting as a good way to store food for the autumn and winter. I'm thinking of transforming cucumbers into pickles or cabbages into kimchi. To help me get started, I spoke to a fermentation expert. The weirdest thing I've ever fermented was a beaver, yeah. We turned it into a garum, which is kind of like a meat-based fish sauce. It was meaty, it was a bit earthy. The fat in it had this very, like a very distinctive mustiness that wasn't pleasurable. But it wasn't the worst thing I've ever tried. My name is David Zilber, and I am a chef and fermenter based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Fermenting is the transformation of one ingredient into another with the help of microbes. That is the most straightforward blanket definition of the entire process. Whether that is grape juice into wine with the help of yeast, whether that is milk into cheese with the help of bacteria, whether that is cabbage into sauerkraut, it's always a transformation of something that you would recognize in a recipe. It's like, okay, well, I, this recipe calls for raw cabbage. Oh, this other recipe calls for sauerkraut. And the only difference between those two things is the microbe that has acted on you know, your initial ingredient and, and transformed it in the process of its own life cycle. The first thing I fermented, it's funny because I didn't do it on purpose. The first thing I fermented was yogurt when I was a child. And I was like eight years old and I didn't finish my Cheerios and I left them on the kitchen counter. So these Cheerios and milk sat out all day. And I guess the sun was hitting it. It was like a hot summer day. And I guess like the bacteria from my mouth or my lips had infected the milk, inoculated the milk, and I got home. And I was like, oh, my Cheerios are still on the counter. And, you know, my mom was home with me at that time, too. And she's like, oh, and I took the spoon out and it was clumpy. And I, being a child, I put it in my mouth. I'm like, oh, it's yogurt now. It was one of these freak accidents. And that's not normally how you make yogurt. But I made yogurt at the age of eight. And I didn't really think about it, but I guess that had uh, large portents for my future in gastronomy. The hearty head cabbages ferment really well. All that you need to do to ferment them is slice them up, add in some salt. You can do that the grandmother's way and say that a big bowl of cabbage deserves like six big pinches. Or you can do it the scientist's way and say, okay, once you have all your cabbage, put it on a scale and then calculate 2% of that weight in salt. You massage it in, and I mean really massage it, and that allows water to leach out. It kind of breaks down the mass so that it can pack in together more tightly. And it allows salt to do its work, and through the process of osmosis, draw liquid out of those leaves, which then creates a brine, which displaces air and oxygen and keeps molds at bay. The salt itself also serves as a means of, of protection against harmful microbes by lowering what's called the water activity level. You know how they say that if you're stranded at sea, don't drink salt water because you'll die? Because that salt will basically dehydrate you from the inside out. It does the same thing to microbes. So with your cabbage shredded and on the scale and you're massaging in the salt until it starts getting wet and you can squeeze it and you can see that salty cabbagey brine start leaking down, well, then it's time to get your vessel, pack it in real tight, lay a cabbage leaf over top to act as a seal, like save one whole one, and find some weight. You can either use the pressure of the lid with a little kind of spacer in between, whether that's a smaller jar or the cabbage's stem. 
And then it simply just sits out on your counter for one week or two, depending on how sour you want your cabbage. And after that, you can move it to the fridge and enjoy it for months to come. Throw it into salads, have it on a hot dog, mix it into mashed potatoes, stew it with vegetables. It's fermented foods are one of the best ways to keep summer's bounty around and enjoy it among friends and family for weeks, if not months to come. Top three tips for anyone who wants to get started in fermentation. Invest in a handful of proper like canning jars. And I would also say invest in just a proper fermentation weight. They don't cost much and you can get specially made weights that fit inside like a standard Fido jar or Le Parfait canning jar. And they come designed with little handles and you can just pull them out really easily and it saves you a whole bunch of mess. Number two, don't be afraid to experiment. Once you understand the principles of fermentation, once you understand it's like, okay, the salt is the most important part and the microbes need some form of sugar or carbohydrate to thrive. Once you have those two basic concepts under your belt and you've done it a few times and you kind of understand the pace of these microbes and what they need to thrive or, or what they don't like, go wild. If you would eat the vegetable raw and it's good enough to put in your mouth at the outset, you can probably add salt to it and lacto-ferment it and see what may come whether that's celeriac or eggplant or cape gooseberries, it doesn't matter. It will all ferment and some things will be better than others. Sauerkraut is one of those magical things in the world that is probably the best version of itself. And so don't be afraid to experiment. And three, share it. Fermentation is not something to be done alone. The very nature of the act is about interacting with cultures, both at the microbial level and at the human level. It's about being social. I kind of say that like no photographer takes photos and keeps them all in a shoebox under their bed. They're meant to be shared with the people around you. So when you make something, make a big batch of it and absolutely share it with people you love. To someone who's weary about fermenting, just realize that this is one of the oldest practices humans perfected or had under their belts to help keep themselves alive in times of need. Once you start doing it, it becomes such a powerful way to become connected to your food. You will rarely feel joy in feeding someone something nutritious and wholesome like you will from making a fermented product and stirring it into soup or slicing the pickles up for a cheese plate or throwing that into salad and saying, hey, look what I made, because you were invested in that process. You took part in one of the most natural acts and transformative processes available to humans at all. One of the most natural and one of the most democratic, and it is something that's absolutely worth falling into. David Zilber. Have you any other nifty preservation techniques that you found useful this year? I'd love to hear. Get in contact by sending us a message on social media. Just search for The RHS. For more information on today's show, visit rhs.org.uk slash podcast. Well, I've certainly been inspired by this episode. I can't wait to get out on my allotment again and start gathering those cucumbers and courgettes and all those cabbages that might run to waste if I didn't eat them quickly and start fermenting and pickling and making chutneys. It's such fun this late summer period on the allotment. 
We'll be back next week, but until then, from me, Guy Barter, it's goodbye. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.